0: Welcome to the squamates podcast this is a totally serious podcast about herpetology where we talk about reptiles and amphibians and all kinds of cool things um we yeah. also use a lot of swear words so <laughs> this says, this 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 show has an explicit flag just in case you hadn't noticed but yes hide your children's ears um, I am one of your three co hosts. My name is Mark D. Schertz. I'm a herpetologist and PhD candidate, and I'm joined by my two co hosts Ethan Kosak,
1: cartoonist and uh, nudist. <laughs>
0: sounded
2: like nudist. I know. <laughs> okay. Intentionally. So thankfully, I'm he's not close to it. <laughs> And I'm Gabriel Ugueto, and I'm a paleo artist and scientific illustrator, and I used to work in herpetology, but not anymore.
0: Every time we tell the sad, tragic story of of Gabriel's fall from glory into (laughs) art, Uh, (laughs) you went from the one unprofitable thing into another unprofitable thing. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Difficult. All right, we're going to start the show. Um, just, just so that you're aware in advance, dear listeners, we're recording this episode at somewhat short notice because we're all hyper busy. But we'll get to that in the, in the bit where we talk about works in progress. But we're going to start the show with um, our, our new section, the Mist Snakes. Although an excellent alternative title for this section was suggested by at <laughs> on Twitter. He suggested places we effed up, which is really good. <laughs> but I still prefer yeah. Mist Snake. So we're going with that. Right? <laughs> um, so as before, as always, all of the or most of the fuck ups um, from the show are listed in the show notes of the last episode. So w- I, I go through the episode and, and write down anything where it was obvious that we were wrong, and I uh, uh, add those all up together. Um, one of those fuck ups does bear re mentioning, which is the Kaludarov paper in Toxins about the Anguimorph venoms, which was, um, I said, w- had been published like eight days before we were recording. Wrong! Uh, it was actually published a year and eight days before we were recording. So, uh, my bad. Sorry about that. Um, How dare you? I know. Isn't that embarrassing? It was really very stupid. Um, <laughs> and then we have some actual follow-up. So, in the last episode, we talked about Toxicophora. And since that episode aired, a new paper was published by... Koch and Gautier in Plus One. Um, You may remember the name Gautier because it was one of the authors of one of the papers that we mentioned and slagged off. And the new paper (laughs) is called Noise and Biases in Genomic Data May Underline Radically Different Hypotheses for the Position of Iguania Within Squamata. And I have written in the show notes here Holy shit. (laughs) (laughs) And then I have a picture of Gollum covering his ears being like, I'm not listening. Not listening. (laughs) So, uh, So the reason I have that in there is that this paper, basically they show a morphological tree, and then they show the genetic tree, and then they show the combined evidence tree. And they argue through the paper basically that the genetic tree is wrong because of saturation and that morphological somehow makes more sense and even if you take them together with one another uh, the position of iguania is obviously wrong
1: now hmm. no this is, this is revenge <laughs> of the taxonomists isn't it?
0: it is well no it's not re- it's revenge of the morphologists who, but no, yeah,
2: yeah. But wait 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 not the morphologists, certain morphologists. I
0: mean, they're, they're not all. Not all right. hashtag not all. morphologists. I know
2: a lot of morphologists that are not, you know, in right. agreement with this. So let's not That's give up morphologists a bad name.
0: Okay. I thought it was so funny <laughs> the idea. So I, I am also, a, I guess, a self-proclaimed morphologist. Although I, I do a lot with genetics. Uh, although I was never taught in morphology. It's a long, stupid story. Um, but they. The, the idea that they have g- gone with here is basically that saturation in the genetics has led to a loss of signal in the tree. But of course, morphology is just as prone to saturation and has yeah. even more likelihood of yeah. converging. Like the fact that they, they mentioned this thing as... So they mentioned Tuatara and, and Iguanian um, dentition. And are like, well, geneticists would have us believe. You know, it sounds like those um, those terrible uh, anti-evolutionist mm-hmm. videos oh, on YouTube. Yeah. They're like, geneticists would have us believe that <laughs> the <laughs> that the dentition in these in these animals has evolved well, in
1: convergence, and <laughs> and they're like, no, it makes that's me not... think of the it makes me think of the aliens. Look, uh, the... Yes.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I'm not
1: saying it was yeah. noise, <laughs> but it was noise. Yeah, the
2: problem is that a, a, you know if you take a radical position on anything, you're going to sound crazy in any right. field. So right. this is kind of the same situation.
0: Yeah, I just feel like it's 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 pretty rough. I, I'm honestly I'm a little shocked that this got published, but then again, it was published in Plus One, which has something of a track record of. Not necessarily looking very, very closely at the sense behind the papers that are published. So anyway, I yeah. mean, I, I'm, I'm interested to see what other people uh, see and hear what other people think about this. It really seems to be they uh, are digging their heels in and um, and just like just completely, as I say, with the Gollum thing, sticking their fingers in their ears. Like, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah no sorry uh, i mean i i do i do agree that saturation is a huge problem and even right now on the projects that i'm working on we have lots of problems where the base like the earliest divergences there's no signal there but morphology is considerably worse yes, in and, that regard and,
2: and i have to say that this is a problem that happens you know often when people sometimes get and i'm not saying this is the case they might be correct for well, what we know they're not, but I'm <laughs> they might, but the problem is when people get their egos trapped into their research, and people have to be very careful not to get their especially in science, not to get their egos trapped into research because you always have to be open to the possibility that your you know findings are incorrect and be, and be ready to
1: change i think that's i think historically we've seen that's not yeah. easy for people, you no. know I mean over and over again, I think about like um I was reading something about. Do you know who uh, Philip Henry Goss is? He was a, a early aquarist. He was one of the first. He actually coined the the word aquarium. Hmm. Oh. And he was a hardcore creationist, which was normal at the time. But he was kind of of the opinion that all of the all of the things that he was finding were evidence of that during the time when people were starting to question that and he really really dug his heels in and you know (laughs) and so you read that stuff now and it's it's but sad but he was a brilliant you know scientist otherwise
2: it happens or you know i I don't know how many times i've seen this in one degree or another you too mark i'm sure that you've seen it many many times in every kind of branch of research you always find those people that feel attacked when their research is proven wrong and instead of you know, trying to see why they may, may, might have made a mistake. They dig the hills into trying to defend a position that sometimes is undefendable.
1: So I think it's human. That's a human thing. Indefensible, <laughs> sorry. Indefensible yeah. is yeah. the
2: wrong word.
0: Yes indeed. So this has been um, an interesting response. We'll see if there's a, a following response from all of the you know all of the other scientists. But um, at least we wanted to keep you up to date with the situation with the Toxicophora. Um, there, there should be more coming out. I, I did a quick search, actually, in the literature, seeing basically what's happening with Toxicophora. And in fact, one of the papers we're going to talk about in a bit, they mentioned the fact that using their, the, the genome that they've sequenced and the genes that they've isolated, it would be possible to ex- explicitly test this idea of early uh, emergency of... of um, proto-venomoids uh, pr- proto-venom um, uh, uh, genes and things in the in the genome and so yeah I mean people are people are still looking at the toxicophora thing with some skepticism in terms of the venom side but no skepticism in terms of the phylogenetic side I think and, that's uh, the key
2: and I heard uh, through the grapevine that there might be some papers coming on uh, exploring um the presence of uh, venom in certain extinct marine squamites
1: groups. Ooh. Ooh. <laughs> Could uh, these be mosasaurs <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> yeah, cool. Um all right. I was blo- did you uh read the thing about the countershading with mosasaurs? Yeah. That blows me away too. The the, the fact that we can see that oh and we and have uh, evidence for that and
2: we have evidence of that in ichthyosaurs also
1: yeah yeah. You yeah. Says, yeah i was
0: just at a um, a conference this actually brings us very nicely on to the next section works in progress um so yeah uh, i'll do them out of order now so i was just at this congress uh, the the deutsche zoologischen gesellschaft um, so the german drink yeah, drink, drink. <laughs> Uh, the, the Zoological Society, the German Zoological Society, sorry, um, this meeting in Greifswald in northern Germany, and there was a guy who was presenting on exactly that. He was showing that you can identify the melanin molecularly, and it fossilizes, and then you can identify it also from these fossils. And so that's how they've shown that, um, that countershading is a thing. He's based in Bristol. I,
1: I, his name doesn't occur to me at the moment, but um, it was very cool. Yeah, I mean that's uh, that's pretty amazing stuff. Like the fact that we can look at something fossilized and and know roughly yeah. what the and the patterning and the, was the
2: the coloration of some of uh, animals like Cinosauropteryx, which is a a, a dinosaur, or Citacosaurus even have allowed, exactly. you know, we now know pretty much exactly what their pattern was. Maybe not yeah. the exact tone of the coloration, but the pattern. You know, if they have a ring tail or if they had a mask. Always... Yeah, that's,
1: and that's, you know, that's one of those things. If you had told me we would figure that out when I was a kid, I, I would be like, yeah, right. Yeah. You know, <laughs> that's
0: true. Crazy. All right. I'll talk about now the, the rest of the stuff that I've been doing. So I went to actually two conferences, this one in Northern Germany, um, which was just this last week, which was um, uh, interesting. There was <laughs> I'm prepared yeah, to drink. <laughs> there is a great deal of uh, entomologists there, and only five herpetologists.
1: So, I. So felt... you're saying it was it was representative of of the actual populations yeah. of these things. Yeah. Sure, But it was. Um... <laughs> I there have There are been four to billion better... entomologists here. Uh, yeah, exactly.
0: I have been to better <laughs> conferences. I'll put it that way. Um, <laughs> uh, mostly because it was just in the sticks. And uh, yeah. So anyway, and before that, I went to the Evolution Congress in Montpellier in southern France, which was awesome. That was the largest congregation of evolutionary biologists ever in history. 2,700 evolutionary biologists and considerably more actually wanted to come, but they didn't have space in the venue. And uh, I got to meet a lot of really, really cool and exciting people. I got to meet Marvely and David Wake, who were oh. there. And that was a very, a very starstruck moment. In fact, uh, uh, Dave Wake came over and introduced himself to me because I've done some editing on the website and he saw my name tag thing. And that was like ah, <laughs> so, that's awesome. <laughs> I podcasted about you. <laughs> yeah, I didn't mention that at all. I was like, oh, oh it's <laughs> so nice to meet you. Um, yeah, so that was that was super cool. I got to meet so many cool herpetologists and other people doing awesome things. Uh, I can't even begin to list all of them. They just it was so awesome. So many people, and Montpellier is one of the most beautiful cities I've ever been to. Holy shit. It's, it's incredible. <laughs> and then at the end of the thing, there was a party. Oh, I should mention, the best, probably the best talk, in my opinion, was given by um, Emma Sherritt, who does, she did a lot of stuff on Geomorph, and her talk was about microcephaly in sea snakes, and how mm-hmm. they've evolved these very, very thin, long heads, even though they have huge, thick bodies. These thin, long necks and heads, which they use to go into eel burrows, bite the eels and drag them out. So cool! It was, uh, it was so cool. Um, so I got to talk a lot with her, which was really cool. Anyway, I, I, didn't, wanted to I say, didn't realize
1: they were eel specialists, actually. I, no, that's only some of them. Very cool. Yeah. Them, yeah,
0: yeah. Um, and then at the end, there was this ridiculous party, which was at a cloister in the middle of fucking nowhere. And uh I'll just just to summarize, uh, there were about there was about one bottle of wine per person, almost no water, and basically no food. So Yikes. people were pretty hammered. <laughs> and, uh, um, yeah, yeah, the party was. It was crazy. It
1: was really... Ain't no, uh, ain't no party like a herpetologist party. <laughs> well, it was evolutionary biologist. There, the, oh, right. there
0: were some really big names on the dance floor, too. like <laughs> 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 these, these guys stretching their stuff, and you're like, oh, I've read his papers. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, no, that was, it was so cool. And that's been, that's been most of the stuff that's been occupying me for the last uh, month or so. I, I mean, I've been doing other manuscript stuff. In fact, I have a postdoc... Application that's due on Thursday, so actually a few days before this episode releases, I, I, it's been so stressful because this thing is due extremely soon and I've had this congress going on anyway. So that's why, uh, at least from my side, that's where the stress is coming from. Gabriel, you want to talk about your stress?
2: Yes, it's been a very stressful month for me as well. I've been um, preparing... <sighs> so... Some of my work got selected to be in a, an exhibition of paleo art that is going to be um, at the Museum of Natural History in New Mexico at the same time that the SVP or the Society of Vertebrate Paleontology uh, meeting occurs in October, but the, um, the exhibit is going to come, uh, I think it's going to last from the end of September to the beginning of January of next year. So uh, three of my works got selected to be in the exhibition, and I've been preparing the thing and printing the work and uh, framing them and matting them. And it's just that is always a nightmare because you, yeah, you know, it has to be there by a certain date. So thankfully, I got that all solved. Well, I still haven't shipped them, I'm gonna have to like pay a lot of money to get them there by next Friday, yeah, but um. But I got them all printed and packed and all that. And um, I, aside of that, I've been, I'm working on a lot of commissions that I cannot divulge. Um, one I can, I am really happy about is a, a new species of lizard, which is really nice. A really cool new species of lizards. I got commissioned to do the illustration of that. Um, hopefully when it, when the description comes out, gets published, um, everybody will see the illustration in. You guys are gonna love it. It's a really cool lizard. Awesome. And, and it, Do you know which it's, journal it's in? I don't know yet, but it's from a. It's from. He could a, tell you, but he'd have to. <laughs> he'd have to kill you. Yeah, I probably get killed if I tell him. Uh, and um, but it's from a group of lizards that we both we all like, so okay, uh, that's cool. And um,
1: that could be literally any, any group of lizards. <laughs> yes. I, I lived in Vegas.
2: That. no, I mean, there are some groups that I like less than others. Let's
1: let's, just say it like that. We should do a new section where Gabriel rates, you know, like Gabriel (laughs) rates. He does a review on a a ten-star scale.
2: Yeah.
3: (laughs) Cryptocephalus.
2: And and (laughs) another cool thing is that I got commissioned. This one I can't talk about. I got commissioned to do uh, reconstruction of three um, species of um, extinct Pleistocene. Um, marsupials from Australia. So some of them are those these giant wombats that are like oh, nice. they were super huge, like rhinoceros-sized wombats. Yeah, and, uh, and uh, dipro
1: or something or other. Yeah,
2: diprotodon. Right? Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And another thi- thing that looks like a giant tapir-like creature that looks like a mixture between a, a wombat and and a and a, a, <laughs> a tapir. So that's really cool because it's a really you know cool group of animals to reconstruct. So, yeah, I mean, I've, that's, those are the commissions that I can talk about. The other ones I cannot divulge just yet. What about you, Ethan?
1: Oh, let's see. Uh, next month I've got... Well, I said before that that uh, the, the sequel to Does It Fart, True or Pooh, was out soon. Um, I think we're nearing within weeks of that uh, for the UK release. And then I've got... Um, a bunch of commissions. Nothing really exciting there to talk about. Lots of stuff going on in the in the newt room. Got lots of stuff breeding. Escaping. And I'm gonna, <laughs> Escaping. I had some escapees, yeah. Yeah, some fire belly newts. I've recovered some of them, not all of them. Mm. And uh but they're you know, that's happened before. Usually I have a pretty good track record at recovering escapees. <laughs> that's good. That's um, good. Yeah, and uh, yeah, so I'm going to do a reptile show, sell some newts in a month or so. Yeah, excellent. Are yeah, the um, big up there? Uh, yeah, there's a pretty big one. The one I'm going to do is, um, it's not super big. It's not like the one in White Plains, which is enormous, but it's the one in Rochester. So it's it's a big, it's a pretty big. Do you know where the biggest over the whole armor.
2: Um, reptile shows are here in the U.S.?
1: Uh, Daytona, right? Right, that's what I thought. The one yeah. that we have
2: down here in Daytona is huge. Do you know how yeah. many
0: people attend the Daytona thing? Because the Germans are always proud of
1: having the largest one in the world. But... No, I think
2: I think nothing compares to the Germans. Uh, the Germans have, like, giga- ginormous... Yeah, there's ha- Ham, right? Yeah, uh,
1: The ha- Ham show, yeah. Yeah. And I always see all the... Yeah, that's funny, because I'm in a bunch of groups where you see a bunch of guys with these, like, amazing, rare salamanders, yeah. and they're like, taking it to the Ham show! Yeah. And I'm like, gah! <laughs> <laughs> was that a german accent that was my german accent yes <laughs> oh that it was sounds hilarious. like augustus galoot but yeah yeah <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah i mean i've been to the helm show a few times and it's uh it's nuts it's really crazy
2: and they have like the weird like the rarest stuff that very
0: they, rare yeah, stuff. yeah, yeah. I, I saw some length and notice there and paradora muscle bay and things uh, yeah. in air quotes here legal things yeah. but I mean almost all of the illegal stuff that happens at home is happening under the table you never see it ever it's styrofoam so boxes the, well, being held, hand, handed from one guy to another guy or, or, yeah. I mean it doesn't actually the gender doesn't matter so much as the fact that most of them have t- tattoos so it's just <laughs> like from one tattooed person to another tattooed person the stuff is being handed over you have no what? idea what's being traded
1: there's I can't this... speak as much as far as, you know, as far as like the some of that stuff, but I know I can, I see some of that happening on Facebook, and, and what's interesting is that a lot of the legit guys, the, the German guys, they're very particular about like the paperwork that goes with that stuff, uh, where it's like, you know, I've got the papers for this, you know, this particular, right. not just species, but like locale, yeah. strain you know. Yeah. <laughs>
0: Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of that stuff happening. And at the same time, you know, there, um, you know, there, there are also Germans who are doing terrible things as well as... <laughs> all the, because it's in Germany and Germany is part of the Schengen thing. So Schengen basically means that you can cross the borders within the EU without going through a border check. And so yeah. a lot of stuff enters Germany to be traded into the German market that was illegally imported into other European Union countries Without the same levels of stringency at the airport, border control, or whatever, and so yeah. you get all of that. All that stuff is See, mixed in there too. So it's very hard to judge. You know what's legal and what's not. But
1: yeah, around here, like like in the U.S., it's very difficult as far as salamanders. Because I'm mostly into the salamander stuff, and we had the importation ban a few years ago. Right. So now. Good. There, yeah, which is good, right? We'll talk For about the that. Right reasons.
2: But yeah, uh, well, so okay, so I know a lot of the lizards and stuff enter through here through Miami. Yes. Where do the salamanders enter? Like, do they enter through here also, or?
1: I think at one point they did uh, when they were being imported, but like all the stuff from Asia, because that all stopped. stopped yeah, it, it's the, not. I won't say entirely stop. People like uh, like. Um, Tylotriton, varicosis, and stuff like that. You have to be very careful about about those because they are... And Laotriton. And Laotriton is interesting because it didn't... Because the genus Laotriton was created after the ban, it wasn't on the ban list.
2: Oh.
3: So, so people got it... Technicality. People
1: yeah. brought it in on a technicality. Yeah. Happens all the time. It's so bad,
0: yeah. That's a problem. I don't
1: think people. I don't. I never thought about how a name change could have legal repercussions like that.
0: CITES has huge troubles with uh, with managing the trade when the when the names get divided. So unless something is is listed by genus, and even then, it's not always safe. um, It's it can be very challenging.
2: I'm sad to say, but they have to, they have the only way to, they have to keep current with the literature. That's, no, what they exactly.
0: Have to do. But everything has to yeah. be voted on. So how do you keep current when, you know, your process is like by committee? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's yeah. crazy. Yeah. So th- speaking so, of other things that are crazy, it's time to move on. Wait, right, but before we
2: move section. on, I just want to okay. say, just to add to my uh, works in progress, <laughs> that if you, somebody listening to this, is waiting for some, Prince of mine, <laughs> please be patient. They are going out soon. I just been crazy and behind. I haven't printed over here. I can show the people here so they can see. Wait, give me
1: a second. We, you do realize it's a, it's an audio podcast. I, I,
2: I just want to make that they know that some of these are getting. Oh, hard. there it is.
0: <laughs> we can confirm that they are real. But, is that a woma?
2: No, that's a that's a, one of those Caribbean boas thing.
0: Oh. Oh. Okay. Uh, yeah. Oh, nice. Mm. All right. Beautiful.
2: Now we can move on.
0: Okay, now we can move on to everyone's favorite section. Breaking notes! <laughs> uh, it's good to start it um, on a high note because we're now going to follow it up with the lowest note of all of the notes.
2: Very, very bad.
0: Uh, yeah, oh yeah. Uh, very bad oh, for uh, many
2: reasons. Um, oh yeah,
0: okay. Gabe, take it is- away
2: well i I just want to i i just want to say that if you guys remember i think it was about 10 years ago the butantan institute which is a major repository of um snakes of this for the study of snakes in brazil famous Mm -hmm. around the world for making major studies about venom research in in latin america about uh, taxonomy of south american snakes got in a fire And most of his collection disappeared and everything 10 years ago. That was about, if I recall appropriately, it was about 10 years ago. And now, very recently, the Museum of Natural History in Rio also got in a fire.
0: Yeah, burned, burned down. I don't know if you've seen the pictures, but they are, oh, it's just gut wrenching. Now, I work in a museum every day. And immediately, like when I see when I'm like out to lunch or whatever, and I see fire trucks racing by, which happens quite a lot because I'm on one of the main roads through Munich. This the museum is located on one of the main roads uh, le- leading to the um, to the highway, basically out of Munich. And every time I'm like, <gasps> it could be us, <laughs> and then, like that's yeah. that's the worst feel this this fear. And it's always been there, and then. With news like this, where you see in the pictures, I mean, the 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 helicopter shots of the museum are just soul breaking, and I mean,
1: did uh, they say that they had like a uh, like a hundred and twenty three thousand dollar budget? They yeah, like yeah. their budget had been slashed so badly, yes, that that uh, they didn't have proper yes. fail safes. Yes, yes,
2: unfortunately, which, that's a problem, yeah.
1: Which is a problem it, elsewhere too. Latin
2: America too. in general, yeah. but in Latin yeah. America in general it's a big
0: problem. But I had heard also that they hadn't had like th- there had been some kind of problems. They knew that there were some kind of problems with the sprinkler system. The sprinkler system ran out of money, uh, not ran out of money, out of water. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> it did run out of money. That's true, but, um, but it but, ran out of water, and, they and then they, they had to a the water a fire throw from money the, at it? Yeah. Yeah.
2: What, what I heard is that they knew they had the problem, but they didn't have the money to. S- fix it exactly yeah
0: exactly Uh oh. oh
1: and it's just uh, i can't What's, I all the pictures uh, there's a ton of pterosaur research yeah, that I, went up yeah yeah and
2: right some of the largest pterosaur or i think the largest pterosaur collection in the world was there yeah um they had the oldest uh skeleton of a of a homo sapiens in south america there
1: yeah. also yeah it's just it's just and bad languages news. right uh like there were there were uh, like the last records of certain languages, yeah. they're yeah. now yeah. gone.
0: Yeah, all of those, uh, the 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 recordings of the last, like the, the last spoken, the last time those languages will ever be heard spoken is now. Shouldn't we? Gone shouldn't we have some kind just, of like? They should be backed digitizing. up. Like that's digital. Yeah, that right. It needs to be in the
1: cloud, protected. Yeah. That was my first thought, yeah. was how did we not do that? Well, but I guess that's, uh, you know, again, that's oh, a man. that's a, a budget I, type of thing.
2: Yeah, I have very uh, big, you know, probably, I don't know. I, I think that this doesn't belong only to Brazil. It belongs to the world. Right. And, and um, it should be the yeah. responsibility of the world to keep a backup of these things.
1: Right. Strong the problem is that
2: the, the problem is that we know that... Most people are not going to be thinking about that unfortunately
1: you think you think uh, you think nationalism gets in the way of that kind of thing
2: I think it's one of the reasons yeah
1: yeah oh,
0: yeah 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 I mean and also you know it's, it's when you have collections of that size, when you have multiple millions of specimens like my museum has the world's largest collection of butterflies and The idea of digitalizing them, like they're going through, they're digitalizing them, but it's like a million boxes alone and getting that many pictures is just, I don't know if it's a million boxes alone, but it's a lot. It's really like, I don't, I don't even know how many specimens we have. We're one of the largest collections in Europe. And it's just it's bonkers. But getting those things digitized and they're,
1: and they're highly flammable.
0: And exactly, I mean, when the things aren't dried and carefully pinned on into wooden boxes in wooden halls, um, they're kept yeah. in in this extremely flammable fluid, which is goes by the name of <laughs> ethanol. And like, the idea that anyone right, is allowed near this museum with a with a cigarette is just, uh, yeah, gut wrenching. Yeah. So. Uh, it's just that that is an unparalleled kind of disaster.
2: I'm going to make a correction. I said there was a uh, Museum of Natural History of Rio. And it's in, in reality, it's a Museo Nacional, which is in Rio, but it, it's not only it doesn't only house uh, natural history.
0: Correct. It, yeah. it
2: also houses a lot of stuff from historical yeah. artifacts and stuff like that.
0: Art and yeah. And there are all okay. these pictures of the, of the meteorite being like, oh, the meteorite survived. But, like, the meteorite has gone through the world's <laughs> atmosphere. It's dealt with fire before. <laughs> like, it, yeah. At least of space. my concerns.
2: <laughs> um, I've heard that the, that the vertebrate collection had been moved several times. Exactly. Years. Yeah.
0: This is the one, the one saving grace, at least, from, like, I mean, everything is still awful. But what I wanted to mention was that at the time, it wasn't clear. You know, in last week's episodes, we talked about uh, Bertha Lutz and her incredible contributions to the herpetology of South America, and I had been concerned immediately that, of course, all of her collections would have been housed in this museum, and because this is where she had been working, uh, but as it transpires, all, at least all of the wet collection for reptiles and amphibians, from what I've heard, um, was not housed in- on site, so yeah. it survived. It the has stuff not in been, ethanol it, yeah. yeah
2: it had been it had been moved to another side several oh. years ago. oh okay
1: yeah. i was yeah. gonna say like you said that's like like shelves of basically no 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 yes exactly. cocktails. it's just the, a different one that I, building
2: yeah the one the one that i think got lost was the entomology
0: collection right right uh, all of those types and everything and if you can i mean so this is uh, this is like taxonomically, this is a huge problem. What do you do with all the things where those were the only specimens ever collected? Those names are yeah, now yeah. irrevocably lost unless someone by chance has photographs or the or the description happens there's to a, be adequately a um, accurate. Yeah, yeah.
1: Which, which, which is crazy because, which
2: is, um, uh, you know, a, a description could have been thought to be adequate several years ago, but it's not any longer because we have discovered new characteristics and stuff. So, yeah,
1: yeah. Sorry. I was going to say that there are are people out there now they're asking for anybody with photographs of anything, I think, so that they can compile as much as they can. Exactly.
2: Which brings us back to the to the to what we were saying, that there has to be a way to digitalize all this. I mean, we have the technology, what we need is the money. To right. be put into this, you know, kind of things, but you know, yeah. that's very difficult. I mean, because... that, could be,
1: that could be a. I, I mean, that could be work, though, for something. I mean, that could be jobs. Yeah, but the problem that... is
2: that people are going to object to doing these kind of things. We we, yeah, we know that's going to be is
0: stupid. Happen. Yes. But... Yeah, and <laughs> the sorry. government's never going to allocate the money for it. And ultimately, this yeah. is this is a government-funded institution, just like mine. And if the government like the government doesn't give us enough money to have to buy pencils with, so how are we supposed to digitalize our collections? It's just um, exactly yeah exactly. So that was the worst of the possible news, <laughs> and now I yes. guess we'll move. Now we're depressed. To, yeah, yeah. Now we're depressed. Yeah. We'll we'll move through some some new papers that have come out over the last uh, month. Uh, some of which I find quite exciting. So we'll start off uh, with a paper by Aurelien Mirales et al, uh, which is in press, it's in the Journal of Evolutionary Biology, and it's titled Molecular Evidence for the Paraphylae of Scolicophidia and its Evolutionary Implications. So this is a, a very nice study. Um, I, I know Aurelien, we've done some work together, and um, basically confirming once again what i mean th- this evidence has been coming on for a while now but basically Scolicophidia, which is the group that includes um, the blind snakes the so so the typhlopids, and the ty- so the typhlopoids which is typhlopidae garopilidae and xenotyphlopidae. Um, so those three families that's the typhlopoidia and then there is the um, the, leptotyphlo- the leptotyphlops and then there's also the typhlops, which are...
2: No, right? they are anomalipids anomalipids yeah. yes. Yeah.
0: Correct, yes, yes, yes. Um, and, <laughs> I mean, every people have long held these to be a monophyletic radiation because they're all long, thin, burrowing snakes. So morphologically, once again, we come back to this problem. This is actually something that was mentioned in that study by, um, by Koch and... Um, yeah, Koch and Gautier, they mentioned the fact that if you include the species that have become burrowers, the entire morphological tree falls apart. And, and this is part of that issue. So um, morphologically, these were all considered to be um, sister to one another. Genetics says no. And this is just basically the final, the, the, the final kick in the, in the back while it's down, which renders that hypothesis... Moot, and now it is apparent that the animal lepidids are in fact sister to the aliphaliphanofidians, which are the advanced, so-called advanced snakes. Yeah, so that's it, it's a fairly simple and straightforward conclusion. It's been a long time coming. And that there's in a, fact, if you, sorry,
2: and that there is a burring origin to snakes.
0: Yes. Probably. Yeah. So they. They claim that there is a burrowing origin to snakes, which I think is a bit of a stretch from this evidence. I mean...
2: Okay, uh, but le- let me, le- let's just talk about this for a minute. Why <laughs> so people are so against a, a burrowing origin to snakes? No, no, when- no, no, no. no. No, I know me. I know you're not but but in general I've heard so many times so many people def, like against this, this
1: this origin it makes it makes much more sense than For, a, than an aquatic yes, origin. Aquatic every origin time, is stupid.
2: Every time squamates have lost their limbs is because yeah. they've been be, they become fossorial or yes. semi fossorial.
0: Literally it's, no swimming squamate are there mosasaurs that lost their limbs completely? I think completely? we, well, we, like, we talked. We've talked no. about this before, right? Flippers are good for yeah. being like it's so dumb. So yes, obviously there's a burrowing origin of snakes. What I'm saying is, it didn't look anything like these blind snakes. Nothing like that them. Th- That this isn't great evidence for right. that. No, discussion. this is yeah. this yeah. is just evidence that these things went hardcore into the burrowing, very small <laughs> yeah. thing. Whereas all of the other snakes were probably like, oh, I'll, I'll spend some time underground. Oh, I don't need these legs anymore. And then they're like, oh, I'll go up in the trees <laughs> but, now. That's you nice. know, it,
2: <laughs> when that, that just means that when squamates become fossorial, they all turn, tend to get the same morphology. So we have anomalipids on one side. We have the other teflopoids on the other side. We have amphisbanians, which look similar. They have the same, you know, relictual eyes yeah. and the same kind yeah. of big scales and similar fashion. General
0: yeah. look, so yeah.
2: it happens over and over in the tree. Like, yeah, there are lots of skinks things that the do tree. the same thing. Yeah,
0: yeah. Yeah. So uh, we can move on then. That's quite a nice paper. <laughs> um, as I say, Journal of Evolutionary Biology. I don't know if that one's open access, but you'll have to go find out. Um the next paper, just very briefly, I want to mention this because it's only tangentially sort of, or, or, or it's, half, it's half relevant um, to the thing, but it's sort of, it's one that makes you go, huh. Um, so there's paper by Opazo and Zavala in Scientific Reports where um, the, the title of the paper is Phylogenetic Evidence for Independent Origins of GDF1 and GDF3 Genes in Anurans and Mammals. And uh, obviously we don't know what GDF1 and GDF3 are. So basically GDF1 does the whole left-right patterning during embryological development. And GDF3 does um, many different things. But one of the most important things is that it helps to lay down the anterior-posterior identity of the body as it's developing. So these are super important developmental genes. And what this study has shown is that the ones in amphibians and the ones in mammals, or at least the ones in frogs and the ones in mammals... Have been convergently derived, so they're not proper orthologs of one another. Which is bunkers. It's just like that is that These is are bonkers. super important genes, and they've been evolved twice, basically.
1: Here's here's yeah. my question: Are they different between from uh, anurans to caudates?
0: I don't know. I'd have because to look at the paper again.
1: They because the, the limbs develop backwards. Oh, true.
2: Mm-hmm. It's true.
1: I
0: hadn't thought about that. But I would imagine... Uh, I don't know. That's a good point. Yeah. All right. That's well, but, another...
2: Huh. <laughs> but if that was the case, if there were differences between, between frogs and cadets, I mean, that would have... I would imagine that that would have huge evolutionary implications, right? I mean... Uh, well, it seems would, to me that think, an right? important yeah. gene like that I mean, we're not talking about
1: this is the like a... So that, so but then my question is if that's not true why? Why is why do they develop backwards? What's the oh, difference?
0: I don't know enough to be able to answer that question. <laughs> I just wanted to barely briefly mention this because it's interesting. <laughs> <laughs> we're going to move on. We're going to move on. Yes. We're going to move on to some yes. A new genome. In fact, there are two, well, there are two new genome study papers that I want to talk about. The first one is uh, the so-called Habu genome. Do you guys know what a Habu is? No. It's one I of can't those say that I do. Asian vipers, right? It is correct. That, that, that's correct. Oh. It is Protobothrop's flavoviridis. Um, okay. And it's called a Habu? It's called the Which, Habu. I'm
2: guessing it's Japanese since the name. No? Correct. I mean, all yeah. of
0: the authors are Japanese. So I would pre- presume, uh. Uh, indeed, that it is a Japanese snake. So um, what's quite cool... So this is the one that I mentioned earlier, where I said that we were going to mention this thing about the venom protein genes and the and the, like, what they can be used for in terms of understanding evolutionary um, history within the Toxicophora. So basically, these guys compared the venom proteins to the orthologs that are not involved in venom within the genome. And they showed that the venom proteins undergo more rapid evolution than do their non-venom orthologs, which means that basically the things are evolving venoms more quickly, which makes total sense from everything that we know about how uh, how these things happen. So basically, what happened is that the genome was duplicated, so there were copies, and then one of the copies became used for uh, for venom, and the other one didn't. So that's why they have okay. what are called um, SV snake venom MPs. I can't remember what MP stands for. And uh, NAMPs. Uh, yeah, NAMPs. Yes. Or
1: envy, envy MPs, non-venom uh, M- MPs. <laughs> so, so almost like a, it's almost like a, like a, like a built-in control group, sort of.
0: Well, um, sort of. No, not really. It's more the fact that they're co-opting these genes to do okay. a new thing, and because they're co-opting them. Uh, only some of them are being used for this new function, and the other ones are still doing the old function.
1: Oh, oh, okay, I see. Yeah. Uh, so part it's like partially reassigning, almost, sort of... Yeah, yeah, exactly. So some of this
0: paper is really, really hard to read... Uh, I just wanted to give you the example of this sentence. <laughs> so the sentence goes, since NAMP has been found in lapid snake venom, NAMP like SVMP, in brackets, SVSP11, my, is hypothesized my eyes, to be the my earliest eyes have already common glazed ancestor over. to of FSVMPs. It is presumed that SVMPs have evolved from an NAMP-like ancestral (laughs) SVMP by gene duplication followed by domain loss and accelerated evolution. Interestingly, an NAMP-like SVMP gene, SVMP11, was located on the same scaffold, habu1 underscore scaffold underscore (laughs) 2862 accession number blah blah blah, it's just ridiculous it's so hard to read it's impossible (laughs) you could record
1: that and sell it as a sleep aid you could you could
0: it's impossible (laughs) So, one of the other interesting things that they found is that um part of the reason that venoms are so variable venom proteins are so variable is that there is quite a high level of alternative splicing in them which uh Alternative splicing is basically just where you, you're taking, you're reading off the gene, but then there are multiple different ways that you can cut it. And so you can get different proteins basically from the same, from the same gene. That's what alternative splicing means. And uh, because you can do that, you can have even more rapid diversification or you can have more variability both at the intra and inter specific uh, level. So. Yeah, that's quite. That was quite a cool paper. Very hard to read, as I say. But that's just because I'm not really into it. And I'll follow it with another paper that was ridiculously hard to read, uh, <laughs> which um, is actually more of don't a don't you methods just love
2: paper. genetic papers? Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, this one's actually a methods paper, and it's it it gets hard. So this is. Um, the only reason I'm mentioning it is because it says some quite interesting things about Lampropeltis, and I imagine that several of our listeners like Lampropeltis. Um, and I imagine that you two <laughs> no also <way>. like Lampropeltis. <laughs> so the paper is by Burbrink and Gahara. It's published in Systematic Biology. Um, and it's titled The Biogeography of Deep-Time Phylogenetic Reticulation. So basically, the premise is that hybrid origin of a species or lineage should be expected to coincide with ancestral co-occurrence of the parental lineages because if they're not occurring in the same place then they can't have bred right so they can't have produced a hybrid and so using ancestral state reconstruction you can infer when things were together or if things were in the same place at the same time and thereby infer who the parental lineages were. You're no longer saying, "Oh, it's just something in that clade." You can say, "Actually, it okay. was this part of that clade
1: that was doing the thing." So, I mean, they're kind on. of well known for for hybridizing with everything. Anyway, they, I mean, like they hybridize with uh, panthera all the time. And... Well, yes,
0: yeah, yeah. But this is just that's just the concept. Like that's just the idea. Okay. Okay. All right. Is that you you can do this. It doesn't have to be in Lampropeltis. You can do this in literally any of the animals, right? Okay, so this or, is just an, or or, right, anything right. indeed. But am, in the case am, of am, the Lampropeltis thing,
2: I just, I just want to ask something because I'm not, I don't know about this. Uh, does Lampropeltis hybridize with pantherophis in the wild?
1: I think they do. Where they where they? I have well, never... They definitely do in captivity. I don't. I, I think there are integrates.
2: Between the Lampropeltis and Pantherophis in the wild?
1: I Well, I don't know. Now that you're saying that.
2: It's just because I was just, you know, this is obviously, I think this paper talks about hybridization in the wild because obviously it's talking about the distribution of taxa that can be, you know, exactly. found together in the same. Yeah. So I, I just, it just blew my mind for a minute that Pantherophis and Lampropeltis could pre- hybridize in the wild. I don't think that.
1: They, they definitely do in captivity all the time. Um yeah, yeah they, I, king
0: I, I can't king find Horns. exactly I can't find any evidence of king corns I'm,
2: I'm sorry for sight in tracking. the wild yeah no,
0: that's all right that's no
2: all right. Worries. we will find out for the next episode yeah,
0: yeah. I mean so they use actually a very very complex method so they, they use um, machine learning in order to go through and and check um, these things but to cut the story very short, basically they showed that three species which are Lampropeltus webby Ruthveni and Mex, uh, Mexicana, they all stem from an ancestral hybrid lineage. Lineage between something like L. Polizona and the ancestor of the L. Uh, Laterna to L. Uh, Knoblochi clade, mm-hmm. and they inferred that to have occurred in northwestern Mexico and the southwestern mm-hmm. United States in the Neogene to early Pleistocene. So that they've got this down to quite interesting, yeah, quite yeah, accurate yeah. inference. It's very cool. Extremely hard to take away and and use unless you're actually into these kinds of methods. But that's something that Frank Burbrink well, is known for his methodological.
2: He's worked fields. a lot with Lempert Peltis. He knows Lembro yeah. Peltis back and forth. I'm I, I, You know when when I when I hear about this paper, um, I, it makes me think. So in Latin America, there the nostalmus, which is this. Gibnostalmus genus, it has a very complicated um, molecular history. And uh, you know, there have been a lot of big studies about the the, uh, molecular studies of hypnostalmus. And I think trying to, you know, figure out which the uh, parent species are of some uh, parthenogenetic taxa and all that. And this would be something that would be great to apply to that group.
1: Mm -hmm. yeah i was thinking ambistoma uh ambistoma but same thing yeah so
2: many groups that you could apply this and it could be very useful yeah
0: yeah yeah potentially it's very useful i mean that's the kind of stuff that usually gets published in systematic biology it's a very good very tough journal to get published in and the quality of papers i used to have a subscription to systematic biology and i actually uh, unsubscribed because i was literally not able to understand so much of the stuff that i was receiving in the post that i was like why am i wasting my money on this (laughs) so i actually canceled my subscription i'm probably going to take it up again actually because um uh, now i'm i think in a place where in my like it's been four years since i had that subscription
1: it's important to have goals, Mark. <laughs> yeah, well,
0: it's important to at least try to understand the, the most recent advances that are coming out. And uh, especially in terms of methods, that's where they get published. So, um, We move on. A new genome paper. This one is super awesome. I don't know if you guys have seen this. So this is published in, uh, in PNAS um, by Lee et al., And it's about genomic adaptation to high elevation in thermophis, which are... uh, Thermophis are the world's highest occurring snakes. They occur at elevations over 3,500 meters above sea level, which is very, 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 very high. And they do so by living in and around hot springs. And if you Mm. live in or around hot springs, you can get around at least the problem of temperature but you still don't get around the problem of low oxygen levels very high uv radiation and the relatively high temperature fluctuations that occur if you are outside of the water and um, in this thing so the first of all they published the genome of uh, one of the thermophys species i can't remember which at the moment the bear with. So, they sequenced the, the genome of Thermophis bailei, and then they were like, all right, well, that'll, that'll be a good start. But then they sequenced two more Thermophis genomes and uh, two pseudoxenodon geno- genomes. So, pseudoxenodon, pseudo-xenodon are related, uh, found at lower altitude. And then they compared among them. So the, the one that they assembled really nicely and that they published is the Thermophis uh, baileyi genome. And then the other ones were sort of used for comparative purposes. So they're, they're less intensively um, annotated and assembled and things. And what they showed is really cool. First of all, there are loads of genes that are under selection in this snake, but that's sort of to be expected. There are always quite a lot of genes under selection. Um, in snakes it just happens to be more in uh in certain in in these snakes than in some others uh but in particular they showed that there are a few genes that are that have stable amino acid changes which have uh been demonstrated to perform um like they they are more stable under uh uv light which is really cool Hmm. and um other ones where they showed that they have um, they, the, the allele change in this one gene apparently says that the protein has lower transactivation activity, whatever the hell that means. <laughs> so, <laughs> <laughs> um, and then, the, I mean, their, so- the, their main conclusion was basically that um, animals living at high elevation, so they compared with some mammals have similar adaptations um, to cope with that, and that occurs at a genomic level, which is very cool. So they compared these snakes to some... So, so these um, ectothermic snakes to some endotherms, to, which is huh. uh, an interesting way of, of doing it. Does
1: that, so do you think that, that they have evolved to... Re, is it that they've evolved to require extremely high... I mean, they evolved to live in an extremely high exposure to UV. Do you think... Because I'm thinking about how, you know, with a lot of captive reptiles, you have to provide them UV radiation. I wonder if if you were keeping them in captivity, if that's something that's required for
0: them. I would guess that this is a that they're trying to mitigate, rather than something that they have been like, oh yes, I need to take up more of that. <laughs> give me the, um, give me the UV. <laughs> yeah, because I mean, certainly at that level, the UV radiation is damaging. It's damaging the DNA faster, and there's, I, I can yeah. imagine no circumstance under which the genome is like, oh yes, I need more of that irradiation. <laughs> well, give it, I it mean, to it's, I mean, I mean,
1: it's, I, yeah, it's. I like I know with uh, I mean a lot of them need it for metabolizing vitamin D, yeah. right? Yeah, like, you know, same. So yeah, <laughs> exactly. So uh,
0: next paper, next paper. There are only three more, so bear with. And one of them actually, <laughs> two of them we're basically going to skip. So this first one, um, we're actually mostly going to skip. It's by Sun et al. and it was published also in PNAS. And it's about the cells that are involved in, in tail regeneration between lizards and salamanders. And ultimately, it's a very interesting paper, but it was already talked about on the Common Descent podcast on one of their latest episodes. And So go watch that. Yeah, li- go listen to that. Go, we, go listen to that. We like that podcast so much. I don't really want to, like, cramp their style. So, <laughs> we can just <laughs> skip that one. It's very cool, but basically, the reason that salamanders regrow... So, salamanders regrow bones in their tails when they're regenerating them. Lizards do not. And the reason that happens, or at least part of the reason that happens, is that the stem cells are fundamentally different that are involved in the whole process. The, the signaling gene hedgehog is doing different things between these um, two... Uh, tail areas.
1: Oh and yes, yes. Yeah. Uh,
0: so uh, Sonic Hedgehog uh, lizards yeah. and salamanders are different. Who'd have thunk? <laughs> what? Yeah. Um, the The next paper I'm also basically going to skip because, first of all, it's complicated as hell. Secondly, <laughs> it's more anolis, and we don't need more anolis, at least not today. <laughs> so. So this paper by McLaughlin et al, uh, published in Evolutionary Letters called, um, well, I don't know what it's called, but it's about a, adaptive radiation in anoles and, the, and them evolving along a genetic line of least resi- resistance. It's super complicated to explain how comp- complicated. They, the, the paper is based around one prediction, which is that genetic constraints should bias the early stages of species divergence along so-called genetic lines of least resistance defined by the genetic covariance matrix, G. And how do you get a genetic covariance matrix? You cross lots and lots and lots and lots of lizards. So this thing is based on like um, 3,000 lizard crossings. So babies that are produced from from crossing these two things. It's crazy. It's a huge study and it's published in Evolution Letters. Which is a good journal, but it's, um, uh, I don't know, proportional to the amount of work that must have gone in here. Anyway, uh, very cool, very hard to understand. It'll be in the show notes.
1: If you want to have a crack not at as it. Much, uh, not as much leaf blowing in this. But one, so, no, exactly. So, what is
2: the conclusion of the paper? What, is it, what, what do the authors conclude?
0: Uh, well, in there, they, they have at the beginning of the paper this thing of, like, the significance statement which seems to be something that's quite popular in some of the journals. Um, In the significant statement, they basically said, well, first of all, they say that the genetic architecture has constrained the long-term outcome of selection for about 40 million years in Enolus, which is crazy. Uh, But it's also, they said something about how um, they'll evolve along this path of least resistance But somehow if they make a jump, it's still like if they they do a big transition, it's still along the path of least resistance and just pushes further. So it's not like they're not doing anything that's super crazy. Uh, So basically,
2: basically proving the idea that we always hear that evolution is lazy.
0: Yes, more or less, more or less, unless you really, really push it. Evolution is quite lazy because evolution behaves. It's not that it always only goes along the path of least resistance, but it will tend to do so uh, just like, you know, anything will. If you push a a ball down a valley, it's not going to go a different route to get around all the things. It just follows, you know, and evolution functions in the same way. So uh, that's the one thing I just wanted to mention because you mentioned the leaf blowers. I got to meet... Colin Donahue at the Evolution Congress in Montpellier and it was so it was so funny I got to ask him about what it was like doing their experiments how they how well they'd planned it he said that he was coming in to do these things and it had just been after a hurricane and so he's coming in with all these aid workers with his leaf blower in his luggage. (laughs) <laughs> it's just like uh, <laughs> quite an uncomfortable situation to be coming in and be like, "Oh, you're here to, to help the people." Um, <laughs> I I'm am here, here to blow, to blow, blow lizards, lizards off the trees. I can't believe also that they did the in situ. <laughs> I didn't. I didn't think somehow. Um, oh, no, I got funny. to talk with him about his research. It was so. It was really cool. Colin and uh, and, and um, yeah, I got to meet quite a lot of other people whose papers that we have either talked about or um, or that i have read recently and i think that's know, still he's my favorite one. Nice guy it's yeah. It's a paper, yeah yeah and at first the name they... didn't click it was very embarrassing and i was like were you involved in that paper about the leaf blowing things he was like <laughs> yes that was my paper <laughs> <laughs> i was like oh no oh no now he
1: <laughs> thinks i'm an idiot
0: <laughs> I keep having that. I had that experience um, just the other day as well with this, at this German conference. This guy introduced himself to me and I was like, your name sounds familiar. <laughs> he was like, yes, I'm also a herpetologist. I was like, oh, shit,
1: I've read lots of your papers. What were they on? <laughs>
0: is, there a, uh, um, is there a
1: German word for this, uh, this type of thing? There,
0: presumably there is, but it doesn't occur to me at the <laughs> moment. You guys just want another excuse to drink. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so the final the final paper of the section final paper of the section is this one because you um, Ethan you just mentioned this whole thing about the salamanders and you having salamanders and them coming into the country by the pet trade and whatever so yes. there is this other paper by Fitzpatrick et al which was published, again, in Scientific Reports, which seems to be the hot journal at the moment, and where they've shown that um, B-sal, which is uh, yes. Batrachychidridium, uh, Batrachychidridium... Salamandivorans. Exactly, Salamandivorans, um, was is very, very clearly spread in the pet trade and has caused oh, yeah. mortality in people who are keeping them. So... Um, Whoa!
1: In mortality in people?
0: In not in people in the in the in <laughs> no, connection. Wait a second. Oh, oh that God. would be crazy. That yeah. would actually be very effective in shutting down the whole business. <laughs> yeah, I um, would think. Yeah. So basically, they showed they 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 traced a single infection. They found an infection of the salamanders in the UK and then they did this thing that the fancy name they give it is epidemiological tracing um okay but all it really means is they found out who has ever traded with these people and then checked in their collections if their salamanders were infected and then they built slowly a map of all the people whose salamanders were affected by this thing yeah that's and they tested scary quite stuff, a lot of yeah. them and then seven of the 11 that they tested tested positive for bsal and i think four of those also had had salamander death from bsal as well so this is a huge thing and people just need to stop sending salamanders
1: <laughs> stop doing it like so, uh, yeah, we're at a weird, we're at a weird place here in the U S with that right now, because we had for about two years, an interstate, uh, ban on the sale or transport of all, uh, not all, but of, of a list of salamanders, mainly European, but also, um, a number of them, a- Asian species. And it was over overturn- the ban was overturned by be- by a challenge to the Lacey act mhm and uh and and uh, there's a there's a herpetall or a uh, it's a herp industry reptile trade lobby group us arc that challenged it and won so yeah. i think there's talk that the that the us fish and wildlife is there that they're that there's another ban in the works i
0: mean be because, yeah. yeah it's from from what i've heard and i'm i may be misremembering it but what i've heard of the preliminary tests of b sal on um on the plethodontids yep. which is most of american salamanders it doesn't affect them as badly as it does the true salamandrids but on the other hand like it hasn't been tested on all the species and we don't want to find they out. They could act as <laughs> yeah. vectors, yeah. you know, yeah. and carry it to other, all of the other salamanders that are, that, that they could come in contact with. Like it just, yeah. it's just a matter of time before this hits the absolute fan. And what is I don't the know one that how... is affecting,
2: what, what is the one that is affecting neotropical ones? Because uh, neotropical species are disappearing. That's... Those are plitodontids and they're disappearing so fast.
1: Uh, are you talking about BD?
2: Is it, is it, so the, it's, a, it's the, not the same, the, right?
1: Right. There's, as far there's as, there's as I'm aware, rooms. yeah, it's BD that's
0: affecting the South American, even South American salamanders are affected by BD, okay. or at least yeah. Central American ones were. No, yeah. South American right. too, like, it's,
1: yeah, they
2: right. have, the numbers are, the, so many species are, for the, for as good as we know, they're extinct already.
1: They're gone, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, and B and and B sal is in Europe has already wiped out a lot of uh, salamandra populations.
0: Populations, yeah. It's not. I mean, yeah. it's
1: it's currently not
0: threatening the survival of the species. But give it some time. It's bad. It's very bad. It's um, very bad. Yeah. Yeah, but. And it's their not... right
1: to be scared. The the ban was yeah. a was a good idea and, and their Agreed. right to be scared and it's very unpopular to say that right now in in those circles. But it, i it's I'd rather it be difficult to get them right and still have them out there, you know? Yeah, <laughs> of
0: yeah. course. I think that's the thing, that people have this uh, this there's sort of there's this divorce between you know, wanting to protect yeah, the animals, and also the selfishness of "I want one for my own. own." You know,
1: there's a weird—I don't know if you've seen this as much, but uh, there. But in in the U.S., there is a weird sort of NRA-type of attitude about you know. Uh,
0: I saw. I my, saw a lot of these the are my
1: snakes, and you're not taking them away from my cold yeah, the dead animosity hands. Animosity about the Lacey Act. Uh, at least in the well earlier times was the way they challenged it was interesting because they said basically that the Lacey Act is an overreach that it was never intended to apply to banning any kind of interstate trade in anything and and the court upheld it because it, I thought that it, was the whole point basically of the Lacey they Act. they I might be getting some of that wrong, but I think what they said was that it was not... It doesn't apply to all interstate travel. It applied to intrastate travel.
0: Hmm.
1: Well, it's a... uh, Well, uh, yeah.
0: Regulating these things is hard, and you need to have... and, and, And anyway, I mean... The thing about importing animals from from both um, Southeast Asia or or Asia in general and Europe is that this is coming down not to a legality of bringing the animals in because of, you know, wanting to regulate the pet trade thing. This is an epidemiological concern. You know, this is it could become an epidemic, granted not of humans, but this is a serious, serious threat to the native fauna of the country. And right. we know that in the in the United States, salamanders are, by biomass, one of the most important animals
1: in many of the ecosystems.
0: You know, what's, you know what's interesting though is it's a disaster.
1: Uh, what's interesting is that you know I take I live in New York State, and New York State's not un, unlike a lot of the other states here in that they have, for many years prior to any of this any of this discussion the keeping or collecting of wild native species has been outlawed. Right. So that drove a lot of people to seek out exotics. And now we have this problem.
0: It's actually the same in Germany. You're also not allowed to keep native German animals unless they've been somehow uh, registered in there when you're breeding them. Clear. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's a problem. Good, Uh, that takes us out of the breaking notes. Uh, That was quite a lot of papers and quite a lot of discussion, but uh, it's time for us to move on to the hashtag Herpers section, where once again, I must apologize in advance because this has been very rushed, put together. Um, But I'm gonna talk about one of the Herpers whose work I use the most on a day-to-day basis. her name is Rosemarie Antoinette Blommerschlösser, so nice and short, R-M-A, Blommerschlösser, as she goes by in all of the publications. She is, uh, was born in 1944 in Eindhoven uh, in the Netherlands, and she was both a herpetologist and an entomologist, although, I don't know, calling her an entomologist is a bit of a stretch because she once <laughs> wrote a single paper about mites. <laughs> I believe that was the subject of her PhD. Um, oh, no. Her PhD was on frogs as well. So she once read a single paper about mites, which are not even insects. And she gets labeled as an entomologist. <laughs> so not sure how <laughs> relevant that is. But anyway... Um, and they were
2: snake mites.
3: <laughs> no, they were frog mites. So uh, <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's, um, it's a bit bonkers. But anyway... So, right, Uh I'll, I'll shorten it to Rose Blommerschlosser, she did lots and lots and lots of stuff on Madagascar. She worked initially, uh, especially with uh, Charles P. Blanc, Charles P. Blanc, if you're, or Blanc, if you're going to be uh, British or English, and speak English about it. Um, Together they described loads and loads of species and I have on my shelf two of of their books, which are called the Fond de Madagascar. Um so they're they're in the Fond de Madagascar series, and there's Amphibien part one and Amphibien part two. <laughs> so it's um <laughs> these two books were in fact the what what became essentially the prototypes for the field guides to the reptiles and amphibians, or at least the amphibian section of the guides by uh, Frank Glav and Miguel Vences to the reptiles and amphibians of Madagascar. They compile, or at least the second, uh, wait a second, I can't remember if it's the first or the second one. Um, The first one, the first one compiles an immense amount of data. I'm showing it to the guys on the video. It is a really thick book. <laughs> this is a oh, I, I can know. confirm it's it's a thick book. It's about oh, it's four hundred pages. So it is a four hundred page monograph on the amphibians of Madagascar, um, dealing with the taxonomy of all of the described species, and it's it's amazing. It, com- it compiles all of the photographs. I should say that this piece was essentially an expansion of a paper that was published by um, Jean Guiby who was also a herpetologist based at the Paris Museum for a long time he did in 1978 he published a monograph on the frogs of Madagascar this book was basically a follow up to his and it expands it in a, a, a great deal it adds additional species it is super super valuable as a resource I use it all the time then there are some other, the other papers, um, the, the, the second of those editions goes into detail about the distribution, the ecology of various different species, theories about their evolution. So this is really advancing. It, it's super important stuff that advanced a huge amount of our knowledge on the amphibians of Madagascar. The other thing to know about um, Blomar is that she was probably one of the very first of the taxonomists working on the reptiles, uh, reptiles and amphibians in Madagascar, especially the amphibians, who actually went into the field and observed their behavior themselves. So until about 19, well, un- until the 80s, well, let me try that again, until the late 70s, basically none of the people who had been working on the amphibians of Madagascar the Europeans at least who had been working on the amphibians of Madagascar had actually ever visited the field they like Jean Guibet was sitting in a little office they were, in Paris and was They meet. were looking at jars. They were looking at jars which is why so you get So they weren't yeah. describing
2: the coloration in life or anything it was just Exactly. Yeah.
0: It was all it was all morphological taxonomy not based in any way on on life experience. And this oh, is really funny. So you get some some signatures of that. You get um, uh, bufus luteus. Uh, no, yeah, bufus luteus. Yeah. So luteus is the Latin word for yellow. For, Yeah. It is a bright yellow frog. Br- uh, bright green. Bright green frog. Sorry. In ethanol, yeah. it fades to this lovely pale yellow color. But it is called <laughs> the yellow frog because of the coloration. <laughs> yeah. Even though in yeah. life it is a bright green frog with incredible eyes,
1: I, I I think that's happened a bunch of times, right? We've got uh, it happens all the time. That, yeah. All
0: the time, yeah, yeah.
1: So it
0: this was the, one of the big big steps was finally going to the field and actually observing these animals in their natural habitat. And um, one of my favorite papers by um, By she published it herself so a single author it's called observations on the larval development of some malagasy frogs with notes on their ecology and biology and in this paper it's one of the most important resources for us so there's basically nothing else published on the reproduction of the microhylid frogs of madagascar which is one of the main things that i work on and in this paper she's made beautiful notes on larval development, nest types, the fact that these frogs are not, you know, not laying their eggs in water, but are in fact laying them sometimes in foam nests and sometimes in jelly nests underground. Um, So this is really super important observational data that hadn't been available at the time. Um, And so in a way, uh, we have Rose blanche to thank for the fact that We now work on Madagascar the way that we do, you know, we we now go um, We do all of this stuff in the field But I know from my conversations that I've had with Frank love who is my direct supervisor here in Munich That uh, so first of all when they were going on their early expedition So the first edition of their book the reptiles and amphibians of Madagascar uh, The field guide to the amphibians and reptiles of Madagascar. Sorry to be more precise That was published the first edition was published in 1992 and they were doing expeditions to sort of gain photographs and data for that book. Uh, they were doing those expeditions with the preprint. So this, this, their monograph hadn't been published yet. So they got a preprint of the monograph to take with them into the field to use as a field guide. Now the monograph is based almost exclusively on museum material, so they were trying to identify a species in the field by looking at the thing. Bear in mind this is in French, so they're looking at the thing, and uh, and they'll they'll look at a frog and they'll try to describe and and decide if it's the right species. And you wind up with things where you're having to compare like the the morphology, and it's it's things like. The tongue is complete or only a little bit uh, bifurcated. The vomerine teeth are present in a long series that is transverse. The head is flattened and slightly broader than it is long. And that type of stuff, and you're using that information in the field to try to identify whatever you're looking at. When, you know. And there are no color photographs in here. There's only photographs right at the back. Of the dead specimens <laughs> so it's, which, it's almost you know, which can
2: change shape quite a lot in, in, in yeah
1: oh, which yeah, yeah. may have been yeah. dead for decades yeah. Yeah. it's just crazy and in Enloaded fact the second
0: the second part of this uh, of this edition of this uh, monograph thing it does have live photos of the frogs, which is nice. you know that but I'm pretty sure that wasn't available to them when they were doing the field work so, Anyway, what I'm trying to say is that um, Blomar Schlösser really opened up the field for people to go out and start doing the real fieldwork themselves and started gathering some of that ethological observational data, at least on the frogs, that had been barely ever looked at before by any previous researchers. So she's one of the people who uh, she's still alive although she, uh, she's in her um, mid-70s. And she's one of the people to whom I uh, look up the most in terms of my field in particular and just the, the amazing uh, work that she's done so far. It's so, I mean, she's no longer working, but she's, her influence is literally felt on a, a weekly if, a, a weekly, if not daily basis. I use these books all the time in my research and I'm constantly citing her papers especially this one on larval development uh, because it's the best resource to say look this is how these frogs develop no one has ever really revisited that topic so she's a very very cool hashtag herper and I'm sorry that I don't have more details on her life there is no more that is available published in any form that I'm aware of um, although could I'm I go sure look I at it
1: on Wikipedia mark you
0: could go look at it on Wikipedia. Uh, you you could. I the page I actually translated it from the German version because there was no English <laughs> uh, English version, and I added a few things like the the species that they described. She's had actually a number of species dedicated to her, so there there's a, a genus actually, Blumeria, which is named in her honor, and one of the species of Blumeria is. Blommerze. So, in fact, she has a species that's Blommerzia Blommerze, dedicated <laughs> nice. to her. And then there's also one of these tree frogs, the Bufis Blommerze, which was named in her honor. Okay, let's move on to the main discussion. I know it feels like it's been forever already, but now it's time to move on to the main discussion. Now, what we're going to talk about this time may be somewhat, I don't know, politically charged, or at least. We have some strong opinions, and the thing we're going to talk about is invasive species as a concept, and the way that people react to them, and how proportional it is to how actually bad that they are. Get ready for some hot takes. Exactly. (laughs) Yes. And I just want to preface this by saying that at the... uh, German Zoological Society meeting that I was at this week, um, there was a talk by a guy called Chris Thomas, and his talk was titled Biodiversity in the Anthropocene, A Story of Biological Gains as Well as Losses. Now, uh, this was a keynote talk, and what he basically said in the keynote is invasive species typically increase the diversity of an area and are therefore... Good. <laughs> so, <Yikes>. That is <laughs> that the is that strongest. Is even a, that is a nuclear
1: hot yeah. take. That's the
0: strongest <laughs> of the hot takes that you can have. It was greeted <laughs> with some skepticism, let's say, <laughs> from the crowd. What uh, he was what obviously were he just trying at? to provoke. Well, he was just trying to provoke. He was looking all across all of the different species. He was saying, "New Zealand, for example." This
2: New Zealand, difficult got, in New Zealand,
0: right? Right. He was like, well, what did New Zealand get? It got some rats, it got spiders, <laughs> it got all kinds of additional things that Long came New into New Zealand and actually dramatically increased the diversity in the country. And therefore, <laughs> if all you're going to measure is... And so, I mean, if you, take a, if you take this to the extreme and you think about the way that the future is going to be... And the fact that, yes, we are going to, or we are at least on a path to destroy almost all of the native environments of our planet. And what's left is going to be a crazy weird fauna that is going to, you know... I'm really... I wish that I could live for a few million years to see what kind of wacky thing is going to evolve out of Trash Pandas. Like, (laughs) I just think that you could get such amazing diversity from raccoons evolving into various different niches and stuff like okay so commensals are where the future appears to be headed until we get wiped out which you know that could be sooner or later we'll see geologically
1: um, i don't think that's too too much you know too much of a weight uh, no exactly i mean i, I might be a, being pessimistic but you know no i think you're right i think you're right
0: but anyway what i'm saying is That's a super strong, super hot take to take, first of all. And secondly, this idea of, you know, that we're destroying the oceans. Yes, we are. We're destroying the current life in the oceans. But the oceans will be fine. Like, they'll bounce back in the same way that... They've done it before. Exactly. And in the same way that you can pave over a beautiful rainforest. And... (laughs) You know what you'll get back? well you'll get back some like bushes and fields and whatever, and maybe if you go to Chernobyl, for example, and you look at the incredible oh, yeah. diversity that's come up in this what used to be a vibrant town, well, I don't know about vibrant, but it used to be you know, a town
1: that that you bring that up, and that's one of the most sobering things I've ever heard was that you look at Chernobyl and how biodiversity is, how much it's flourished, and what you're really saying is is Human beings are worse for wildlife than radiation.
2: Yes. And we've been for a long time. It's not just a for recent For a long thing. time.
1: Yeah. 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 Yeah, I mean, you, there I are some frogs the there living that with that some serious
0: now, serious cancer. But
2: <laughs> Well, I, I would actually make the case that we're now at least aware that we're doing it. And, and we've been aware that we're doing it for a very short time, relatively yeah. speaking. Yeah. So people have to keep that in mind also. No, you're right. If you, if right. you go fifty year, uh, as short as fifty years ago, people were just starting to think this way, and that's a super short time. So, right. I think sometimes people lose track of you know how recently we've been aware of this as a problem.
1: But you okay? So you, Gabriel, you brought up earlier. We had an earlier discussion about how. There's a real ugly side to this that I don't think we talk about very much.
2: Yes, and uh, as you guys know, I live in South Florida. I live in Miami, which is the hot hot spot in the world for introduced animals. It's also
1: also where the entire reptile trade for the U.S. pretty much enters the country.
2: Yeah, but also, you know, it's been the case since there is a lot of... um, Uh, Miami has received a lot of human immigration for a long time and that immigration has brought with them animals that always happens, will always happen it's happened forever and um, I I just want to mention that we have, the state of Florida has around 206 species of reptiles and amphibians and uh, 147 of those are native the rest are introduced (laughs) taxa most of us, most of them, I, I would say ninety percent of those are here in South Florida because we have the weather that allows a lot of different kind of tropical taxa to survive the, during the winter. The winter doesn't usually get too cold. we get freezes one or two days the most
1: and then uh, you hear yeah, and then you hear about iguanas dropping out yes, of the trees and they
2: become more and more resilient to those as generations go by because what happened is that the animals that are tolerant to this cold weather survive reproduce and pass those genes so you know they're becoming more and more tolerant yeah (laughs)
0: Yeah. so um, i mean you saw those early maps of or well not so early actually just a few years ago i guess they're producing these maps of the possible habitable range of anacondas uh, within the United States, uh, not only the anacondas pythons. but also pythons. Py- pythons uh, yeah, pythons, yeah. Bur- it's because of the Burmians Burmese. Burmese, right? right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And they—it was just like, I mean, the map was awful. <laughs> it was so stupid. Oh yeah, I remember like, that. Yeah, there was no way that these things are going to make it all the way up the Ohio River. I'm sorry, well, but
1: <laughs> that
0: is
2: that is, that brings to to the point of what I want to talk about. There is a lot of yellow press about this. issue and there is a uh, there is a lot of uh, you know i see news reports here all the time like reptiles iguanas running rampant on and you know they cause salmonella well yeah if you touch them and put them in your face if you lick them and so do turtles every turtle that you find native turtles are going to do the same and every lizard that you find is going to do the same so it makes no sense That's
1: actually you know there's laws on the books about selling baby turtles for that reason yes and, Kids and, were putting them in their mouths.
2: And but but so they so you know they say this as iguanas they're the only ones who produce that just because they're introduced. And so right, I yeah, right. every time I'm faced you know I see these reports or I I hear people talking about that it. it enrages me because it's fueled with something that we were Ethan and I were discussing earlier that is somewhat akin to xenophobia because. Yeah, right. You are blaming an exotic, species, an alien invader, an alien invader, an outsider, yeah, for the problems yeah. that are not really their own of their own making.
1: Yeah. And, but when in fact most of the time these things are colonizing niches that, yes, that exactly. we are that are that are we're already vacated. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So yeah, I, I'm, either I'm really we have here, already cleared them out, or you know.
0: this
2: is very very clear here in South Florida. Um, is there is a, 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 apart from the Everglades, there is very little land protected here in South Florida and most of the land that has been used to the, so the Everglades is basically a, a vast grassland wetland, right? But those were not the only type of ecosystems that existed in South Florida. We also have rock pinelands and sand scrub hills and stuff that, not sand scrub hills, uh, sand, sand sand scrub areas we have no hills here trust me as everything is flat <laughs> but, uh, um, uh, we have sans, uh sand sand scrub areas that um that were more biodiverse than places like the everglades for terrestrial fauna so um some ecosystems that are more common in the central and northern part of florida has made it here down to south florida in very uh, small places happens that those are the ideal places to build stuff. And, uh, and most of the infrastructure, the city, has been built on those areas. What happens is that a lot of the animals that were native to those uh, areas have been wiped out of South Florida, and a clear example of that is the, um, the scrub lizard, which is a, a, a species of scalopores. Mm-hmm.
1: Um, it's a fence lizard. It's
2: a fence lizard that yeah. is native to Florida and it's endemic to Florida, and it only existed. If you go back, uh, I think as close as fifty or sixty years ago, there were populations here in South Florida. Now there, I don't think there's any left in the at least yeah. in Miami, and and uh, so when people blame exotics for the disappearance of 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 uh, these animals. It enrages me because most of the exotics in South Florida stay in yeah. urban areas. They don't extend right. to wild areas. You don't see green iguanas or spiny tailed iguanas in the Everglades. You don't see right. uh, 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 nidanol in do, the Everglades.
1: You do see Burmese pythons in the yes, Everglades. Yes, and that's why and I That to mean, has been yes, and, and there's a and That's issue. why I
2: mean that there's a difference between talking to different kinds of exotic introductions. So it's not right. this, you cannot, there are different kinds of introduced um, species. Like, for example, I would say from all the 47 introduced species of lizards that we have here. By the way, there are only uh, about 10 species of native lizards in South Florida. And we have 46 introduced.
1: <laughs> and yeah. so from
2: oh, those... Man. The only ones from those lizards, the only one that could cause a problem for the uh, uh, native fauna would be something like uh, the Nile monitor. Yeah, which, you know, could it is it is found in certain wild areas and has adapted to certain wild areas and also uh, the Tegu's. I was going to say Tegu's right. Yeah, Yeah. yeah. are are Mm. are invading some wild areas and they are tolerant because they're um, salvator marinae, which is one of the species is tolerant to cold weather. Uh, it could cause more of a problem. They've
1: found them as far farther north than Florida. Yeah,
2: like in Tampa, the Tampa area. Mm-hmm. And, and, uh,
1: even, yeah, up into like uh, Georgia or Alabama, I think they've found them.
2: Well, I don't think there's any established populations there.
1: But they get knocked out every winter, yeah, I think. They, yeah. they make their way up. and Yeah, yeah but, but yeah,
2: they really... do survive winters because in Argentina, where they're native from, they do survive certain, you know, oh, cold yeah. temperatures during winter. So,
1: yeah, they're tough. Yeah,
2: yeah. It's, it's, and, and they are, um, uh, they are. I don't know if the right term is this, but they're facultatively uh, endothermic. Mm. Uh, okay. During uh, reproduction, they become endothermic for a period of time. So there is an interesting thietz. we One day we will talk about tietz. Tietz is uh, yes. it's a it's yeah. an interesting yeah. group of lizards. Yeah. Yeah. So, it, but. but again it, it really is a problem when, when you have people blaming I, i'm going to give you a good example all of you have heard about the native green anolis and this Caroline Yes. Edson.
1: oh I know where this is going oh, yeah. yeah
2: so it is yeah. very, very common to say we don't see green anolis anymore since the brown anolis you know uh, got introduced here in. from yeah. Cuba in the 50s yeah. or earlier actually the early reports at the beginning of the ni- the 1900s of, of
1: and, and that was uh, like through. I think it was fruit shipments. Yeah, right? they yeah. came in through. Mm-hmm. Yeah, banana yeah. shipments and yeah. stuff. Right.
2: It's not exactly clear how they got here, but it wasn't certainly not through the pet trade. Right. Um, right. And 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 brown and mollies have invaded basically every ecosystem possibly. Even though they are more uh, prevalent on urban areas, but they have expanded throughout the state, even to Georgia, to Southern Georgia, and everything, and people complain that they don't see green anolis anymore. But that is not the case. Several studies have proven that what happened is that the green anolis have moved upward. Have, you know They've moved their perching uh, spots upward in the trees because green anolis are very recent migrants themselves from uh, the Bahamas and Cuba, from similar species. And in those species, they do cohabitate with Anolis sagre, which is the brown and they behave; mm-hmm. they, they have the well-defined ecomorphs. The brown in lower levels, the green Anolis in higher levels. What they've done is gone back to their ancestral ecomorphs. state. Yes. Yeah, so, right. so, so they they have got right. move up, but people blame the brown for not when, when it's the fact that I told I tell you yesterday I went out to to do some chores around the area. I saw not least then seven green anoles from the car in 30 minutes.
1: <laughs> yeah. I, I, I think it's important to, to say there's lots of examples of animals being introduced and having not very much of an impact uh, or, or not an impact that we understand, right? We should say it, maybe it's say it that way. But, I mean, you know, we talk about, I was going to say, uh, earthworms or, or honeybees. Those are not native animals. And they were introduced here. And we don't think of them as invasives or shake our fists about how they're displacing something yeah, else.
0: Yeah, I think, I think there's a lot of, um, there's sort of a disparity here. Because on the one hand, everyone says that all invasive species are awful. And that's that's the first level of the problem where we have this misconception that all native all invasive species are inherently going to fuck up the ecosystem when that's simply not true i mean right at some level so i wanted to ask before like how much of the fauna like let's say you know if we're talking about the enolis they're eating uh insects right and the question is how much of the urban fauna is able to be affected by these new invaders. Let's take a step away from the Enolis but look at some of the other lizards that have gotten established they're all yes they're in an urban environment but not all the animals in the urban environment are so-called or are or, or in air quotes unimportant or you know so there's there's a lot of damage that you can do to an ecosystem, even an urban ecosystem, if that ecosystem is a native one.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: Just to take right. that, that other stance. We'll but get back to that, that in a second.
2: A, a lot of the, of, the, of the introduced ones cannot establish on native ecosystems. They cannot survive. That's what happens here. A lot of the, right. the, uh, the exotics cannot survive in native ecosystems.
0: But I'm saying that these, your urban system is still an ecosystem that is home to many native species and Mm. those i mean the ants for example all of the flies and i mean okay a lot of the insects are also going to be invasives or at least commensals but many of them won't be if you go into a german like if you go walk down the street in a german thing right the grass is i don't know if the grass is native i don't know about the trees that are if the trees are native but almost all of the insect life that you see is native here. So anything that is eating those animals that ought not to be there could potentially be viewed as an ecological problem because it is eating native life. There's a,
1: there, there's a zero-sum element to the food availability, is what you're saying. There's a, there's a resource availability part of the equation on the
0: one hand yes there's a resource availability if you're taking it away from any other animal that's already in the system and on the other hand it's also like how threatened are these native species in this environment so speaking specifically about the threatenedness of your ants or your wasps or whatever that these things are eating and whether or not you should be you know it should be viewed as a problem that you are they are being introduced into this yes urban system where we have altered almost everything but that some native life has managed to persist you're now Uh, having additional things that are threatening that urban life
2: well that's the thing is how many native animals have persisted in those ecosystems because for example if you talk about and let's keep it in squamates which is what we're you know what are the podcast is about? <laughs> um, uh, if you if you if you take for example Miami, uh, from the ten native lizards that could potentially be here, I would say at the most three of those would be able able to colonize urban ecosystems. Um, only one of them doing it really well, which is the, the green anole. The rest very my like very peripheral per, per, peripherally uh so a lot of those animals that are that are being uh that cannot adapt to uh, uh, mm-hmm. urban ecosystems are not suffering from having uh exotics being able to adapt to this urban ecosystem to give you an example um so we have um two species of butterfly lizards, agamas here, introduced in the South. They live in the backyard of houses. They make holes in the ground where they go in, go out every day, right? Um, in In the same areas, next to a tree, you have two species of iguanas living side to side next to these agamas. They are eating all the vegetation from these ornamental plants that people plant in their houses that are also exotic and and right. so there is nothing that originally ate those plants i'm sure that a lot of native insects are eating those plants also but there is nothing i mean we have changed the environment so much right. that right. that there is no that, that i see no point in so those agamas and those iguanas can only survive in those ha- neighborhoods that have certain kind of plants that they consume they cannot survive yeah. in native environments
0: Mm. So Yeah, I think But the the question is as soon as you go away from the from the I mean, those are folivores, yes, and they but they also are eating insects. And some of those insects may indeed be threatened, who knows? Probably not if they're surviving those environments. But I think also Florida is a really big exception on this scale. I agree. If you were to have an invasive reptile that could somehow survive in Munich which I mean, hard to imagine one. Wait, <laughs> uh, <honest>. uh, wait,
1: <laughs> uh, w- 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 wait, 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 wait! Because I think you might be wrong. There, we have a invasive uh, or introduced at least lizard in New York. But it's up
2: with
0: Of snow. all places,
2: it's a, it's a European world lizard. Yes, it's it your, it's
0: the one that we already have. That's the thing.
2: Yes. <laughs> you can adapt to those weather. Yeah. Uh, yeah.
1: But but if yeah. you, I mean if you. I mean, we have one, I think maybe one-ish native lizard, coal skink, Mm -hmm. And that's because the very tip of its northern range comes up into New York State. These guys, they're not competing with anyone. Yeah, the question is then
0: not about competition. I would say anyway, the question should not be really about competition because the damage that an invasive species does is not at the level of competition usually. It's usually at the level of everything that it is eating. Yeah. That's the yeah. real damage and, that and, they do. And,
2: and, and it does also, uh, you know, regards to competition. And Mark brings a good point because I have a great example of this um, and why it is important for people. This is not a, a problem that you can't tackle by saying that one species is bad and therefore it's bad everywhere because that is not the case. If you have a proper ecosystem like here in South Florida where and, and you, when you also have deteriorated the ecosystem so much that if you have animals living in urban environments, do not af- they don't affect a real eco- wild ecosystem? It's not the same that, this, that the same species introducing another location could affect the local fauna. And a big example of a perfect example of that is the gecko, the uh, tropical house gecko, Emidactylus mabuya.
1: The Medi- Mediterranean.
2: Uh... No, the, the tropical house gecko. The,
1: the tropical,
2: tropical one. one. Yeah. yeah. Uh, mabuya is originally from Africa and was introduced in the Americas a long, long, long time ago, apparently during the uh, when the Spanish were bringing uh, wow. the slave trade from Africa to the Americas. So in here, in the, in, in the, in the United States, in, in Florida, in Miami, we had, I think, five species of Amidactylus and they all replace. It's a weird cycle of how they replace each other on top of... Well, it's a mess. But Hemidactylus mabuya here is not affecting anybody, and it's not... I mean, it's competing with other introduced Hemidactylus, and they do replace each other in certain localities, but it's not affecting any native lizard species. Now, in South America, the situation is very different. And I know a big example is in Venezuela, for example. Hemidactylus mabuya has expanded throughout all urban areas in northern Venezuela. That were used to be uh, uh inhabited by na- other native species like some species of Philodactylus, which is the leaf uh geckos mm-hmm. and some Gonatodes species that are uh, day geckos and what happens is that in the last 20 years um a lot of those faunas of those geckos in urban areas have been completely replaced by Hemidactylus mm. mabuya mm. and and people have noticed and you when you when i was doing um field work for a book that i wrote uh, on a venezuelan island uh, people used to say oh yeah like about 20 years ago i used to think these geckos in my house but now i only find this and i find them everywhere and like if you pick a a painting a picture out of the wall there's one behind if you there because they are everywhere they have taken over so you see it behaves very different in a biodiverse ecosystem like it could be a tropical area that it behaves in a place where the where the ecosystem has changed so much that they are not really affecting any Mm -hmm. Uh,
1: i I think the i think the biggest thing is is when a new species is introduced there's really no way to know what the impact is going to be what's going to happen i don't think you can i think that's what scares people is that it's not something that's easily predictable and i think that's where a lot of that comes from right is the is the fear that you're going to have another cane toad situation
0: yeah Yeah, yes it's that and it's also like acknowledging that um the the effect on the ecosystem can be very serious if they can get out and and established like of all of the um 50 or so species that are established in Florida the reptiles that are established in Florida what maybe 5 are going to be serious ecological problems but that's still it wasn't necessarily predictable at the time you know which one of these right. could get out and would establish and would be a serious problem so all of them i guess should be seen at least from the start as potentially problematic and then you have to look at them. But I understand. I, I agree with your point that the way that we talk about this is so often, you know, you'll talk about it and it's not just, it's not just milkweed. That's a problem. It's Chinese milkweed. It's like yes. the way that we use yeah. the language. Japanese beetles.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's,
0: it's you know, the, the ladybirds that are here, the ladybugs. Sorry for the Americans. Um <laughs> The, the ladybirds that are here that are being replaced through these Japanese imitation beetles. And it's like that sort of language is a yeah. serious problem. So it's the same. It's, it's true, although to a lesser extent because there are simply fewer reptile and amphibian um, invasive species than there are insects and plants and stuff. Um, but it's still that sort of, that attitude of the things that are, it, sh- it should not be the fact that it's, Necessarily foreign from overseas or whatever—that's the problem. The yeah, problem and, and, is, and, 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 right.
2: and they're taking a, they're taking the, the the focus away from what is really a problem for in, for 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 uh, native species, which is habitat loss. That is really right. what is killing right. these right. Ha- native animals. So you—they yeah. uh, are all. In a, and I'm talking about the n- news media. Well, for the most part, because I. Sadly to say, some researchers also, you know, make their living out of promoting these ideas. But, um, but uh, you know, when, when you take the attention away from protecting native habitats for the native species and instead, instead blame these exotics that are not real, not the real problem, and I'm not talking about the pythons because the pythons are a different... Issue, but when you're talking about iguanas or an that are not the real problem and blaming right. them for that, that that I have a problem with. And well, that's what we say that it's a, bit, a little bit like xenophobia because it as is,
1: even and even as problematic as the pythons are, it's still the set you still hear that same, yeah, language, and it's a little it's, bit, it's always. It's always Burmese python. And he's it's always, and he, you know, and it is Well, people don't know guy. how to refer them in any other way. So.
2: <laughs> even, in the python, even in the python case, it's a little bit blown out of proportion.
1: Well, it's partly too playing off. In there, it's not only the fear of the outside invader, but also the fear of snakes. Yeah. Snakes are scary enough on right. their own to people. Right. No, I,
2: right. I've seen actual news reports where they say that they could be extremely 20, dangerous for feet people long. that they basically man eaters yeah. and it's like what yeah that's insane yeah. it's like you know so i i have a big problem with that i i think that yeah. and they they have i don't know if you know guys but they have these campaigns here where every year there's a a, a time of the year where people can go and kill burmese pythons which I have a problem because I know you, you sort of... You, Wasn't
1: there a Simpsons episode with the, the stick yeah, day? Yeah, and, <laughs> and
2: I, I, I think, you know, that's... I don't know if that is... I know that you have to control the population of pythons, but my fear is that that like, promotes a, a, an attitude towards snakes
0: that is yeah. not... Mm. Yeah. Mm. They're not at the same time balancing it and being like, "Oh, we're we're trying to care for our native snakes by going out and protecting and killing these pythons." Right. It's more directed yeah. at just like, "Let's kill uh, all let's the snakes." snakes. And yeah. then people if, get if that over was the, the ca- top. I mean, yeah.
1: look, there have been there has been some of that like we should talk about how rattlesnake roundups were a huge thing Ugh. across the South. They the US. still are, are. And they still, still. are. However, it's a horror show. It's it's they just slaughter thousands of them. However, in some places they've done a good job of turning those things into snake-positive ecological discussions. Right. Instead.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And they get just as many people who are attending them. But I, it's it's still you know, yeah. It's this this demonization. I think it all boils down to this sort of demonization. The things that are foreign are demonized. And the things that are, uh, you know, serpentine or scary or, or reptilian or whatever, these are all, you know, everything gets lumped into that one basket. So, yes. as a takeaway message from our discussion, which I feel we should wrap up as we're getting on in time, <laughs> as a takeaway message, think about the way that the ecology is affected by all of the invasive species when there are invasive species. We need to be thinking about how big their effects are, really, and how worth it it is to be worrying about yeah. them. And we need to be dealing with the problems that are actually the real problems here, which are right, right, right. deforestation, habitat degradation, all this kind of shit.
1: And I just yes. have one final thing, because I didn't mention this, but as the, I think part of the discussion is we, we flatter ourselves a bit. You know, the, the animals dispersing is something that happens That's a rule of nature. Yes. And we've made it faster uh, over the you know we're, and we're realizing that now, but it's still something that animals do. We know that they do this. And that's, you know, <laughs> yeah. I think yeah. I think to to ascribe it all to us is not correct either. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Good. That was a good discussion. I enjoyed
0: that. I hope that the listeners enjoyed it as well. Uh, it's time to move on to our uh, final section, which is questions from Lizardners. And uh, this time we actually only have one question because it was one that I quite liked. It was on. It was posted on the uh, on our website as a comment to the first episode. Actually, um, it's by at on Twitter, L-L-E-W-E-L-L-Y. And the question is as, followers, as follows. Huh. I was listening to the episode one for about the Xth time. It actually says N to the power of tooth time, which I can't. It doesn't make sense. Anyway. Um, <laughs> That's math. And I realized That's too much math. I wasn't clear, entirely clear on the distinction between a call and other noises an animal might make. For example, in episode one, Gabriel says... Geckos are the only squamates that actually call. This is about seventy-nine percent way through. Right after Ethan mentions the gecko and toke are onomatopoeia, I thought of the noises king cobras make during threat displays, and I thought, what exactly is meant by a call? So it that's assumes a response, right? What's a call? Mm-hmm. Well, no, not necessarily. Well, uh. Bioacoustically, a call is simply defined as a, a vocally produced sound that must be produced by the vocal tract. Uh, well, actually, that's not really true because crickets call as well. Wait a second. Wait a second. Uh, it's a sound produced that that is intended to be perceived by a listener. That's what a call is. Actually, I okay. should have my partner on. So my partner, Ella, she works on
1: vocal communication in bats. So this is the, like, she's well, very strict about her definitions
0: on these things. Yeah, I mean, I
1: think immediately about, like, there are definitely snakes that do uh, hisses and, uh, what's the t- stridulation, where they yeah. rub their yeah. scales together. and Got one right there. Yeah.
2: Well, it could be, like, you know, boas can produce this sound that, you know, that sings in sound. Yeah. It's very loud. Yeah.
0: But that's not what I would call a call. It's not a call. <laughs> no, no. I think in reptiles See? we have to be quite strict about it because in reptiles really the calls are intended for specifically intraspecific social purposes.
1: Yeah. Toke is definitely
0: call. I no, mean, geckos we, do yeah, but they're it. calling do. to each other. That's yeah, the thing. Do. They even those are they, they social even, calls.
2: Yeah, they even they even have choruses, like yeah, right. So you
0: could even probably hear them. I have some on my desk in the background here. So if, <laughs> I have geckos that have been calling this evening in my in the office. They might even be in the background of the of the of the recording. Another um, introduced
2: species that you can hear in Miami sometimes in the afternoon <laughs> to, having some tokays going. Oh, oh. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Yeah and you know all, all of the different the different words for the Hemidactylus geckos in uh, various different places often refer to the sounds that they make in in French Hemidactylus uh uh frenatus is called the chick-chuck because it goes chick-chuck chick-chuck and that sort of you know
1: so yeah so they're, they're using it to to communicate, communicate something yeah. right but but by that same logic the snake is trying to communicate something. Well but just it's, not to
0: another snake. Yeah, exactly. I think that's the key. Is that it's the key? Not, is it's, the, it's, it's inter well, not even just inter specific, but it's inter uh ordinal, you know these are <laughs> They're, they're trying to talk to it, mammal that is threatening is, them with a stick. The call is, has to mean something other than no, fuck it off. No, it is
2: part of their threatening display. It is part of yeah. their yeah. threatening display. So yeah, that's
1: true. They do, I mean, tokes definitely have a whole repertoire. So. All, right. many geckos do. Yeah. I mean, if yeah. not
2: most geckos do. Yeah. That's, yeah, that's something right. that is unique to geckos. That's why I say that geckos are the only squamates that actually do that because you have all the lizards that sometimes you grab them and produce an oil, an, a sound. Like it's supposed yeah. to be a, a part of this threatening display it's something for the for the for the predator or the animal that is trying to catch them, to release them out of being surprised.
1: Right. Mm-hmm. OK.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So call is fairly uh, is 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 intended to be a word that's used for communication, communication, and that is usually intraspecific communication as usually not for the purpose of of threat displays and things. So in frogs, actually, there's quite a wide variety of what we consider call because you have the advertisement call, the mating call, the um, response a, call, yeah. right? There's a response to alarm. The, call. Yeah, there are yeah. alarm calls. Exactly. There's the grab when you grab something and it's like, let me go, let me go. That's also we actually just uh, oh, yeah. just last month when we published that Boofist paper that I talked about, I think, in the last episode. Um, there's actually a video appended to that where you can watch this Bufus doing its um, release call, where you... its, it's um, I don't know if it's the release call. It's the, yeah, let me go, you mad <laughs> bastards call. I, and it's I, like,
1: think it's ah! I think it's interesting <laughs> that they have a release call, and yet so many Andorans are well known to just grab anything... And right, <laughs> right, and then well, the thing is, it's it's the rele- reason they have the release
0: call is because if the male gets grabbed, then he's like, oi, let go.
1: <laughs> it's <laughs> like, solely ah, for ah, keeping ah. the males alive. That's all yeah. it is, and yeah, you know,
0: it's to stop them getting <laughs> into those crazy mating balls. So I saw I,
1: someone posted a picture just I just saw of a of like a mating ball, and one of them is getting eaten by a snake. The whole you know while it's oh. <laughs> it's a
0: it's a hard life being a frog. I tell you that it is. <laughs> yeah, so it is a curious fact that geckos indeed are the only squamates that call. But it's just so, um, yeah. I mean, but there are other reptiles that call.
2: Uh-huh. So, uh huh. Archosaurs. Uh, yeah, yeah cro- exactly. Crocodilians call. Archosaurs. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
0: yeah. Yeah. Archosaurs, birds.
1: You know, <laughs> I mean, nobody calls
2: more than birds
1: By definition, I think How about uh, Shalonians? Are there any... No
0: Well, there are chelonians that emit well, squeaking sounds No, when life... they're mating
2: when they're mating also yeah. they're tortoises make this. Yeah
1: okay. Yeah. So is that exactly. a call or is that a... Uh, ah, what what would, is that? Difficult what would...
2: <laughs> I don't know if that would be a call maybe because yeah. it's it's done during 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 uh, mating. So, yeah,
0: I think it maybe depends strongly on the social
1: context in which the sound is emitted. That, whether we call to it me, a call that has, or not, that has the makings of a proto-call. There, but by the
2: way, I, I, I do think there's a study. If I remember this correctly, I'm not, I I may not be remembering this correctly, but I think there was a study that uh, made a point of that. Um, of the presence of a call in archosaurs in particular, something that was like ancestral to the group. Because, mm. um, you know, crocodilians are famous for the variety of calls that they have, not only when they're hatchling, but also during, you know, breeding and they produce all this, you know, roaring, roaring. and sto- roaring and the vibrating of different <laughs> sound waves that we don't hear and all that when they're. So, yeah, the yeah. communication through sound is very important for archosaurs in general.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it's an interesting topic. So, thank you for asking us that question. We hope that you were satisfied with the answer. And that wraps it up for Woo, the fourth yay. episode of the podcast. Thank you for listening. Um, we hope you enjoyed it. Let us know if we fucked up in any way. Um, which, as 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 I said, now throughout the thing, this has been recorded at the very last minute because we realized this is the last possible time that we can record yeah. that we can release on time. Because on the weekend, I'll be in Switzerland and I've got a um, a, a thingy to a, a postdoc application due on Thursday, so it's all stress. So,
1: he's only anyway. been able to name like 12 species this month. Uh, no, I I even.
0: didn't. I've only worked on proofs. I haven't had anything published <laughs> in all of
1: September so
0: far, but it's only halfway. There are two papers that should come out this month still. So, uh, No, one of them's coming out in October, and the other one, it's in Zootaxa. So who knows? Uh, <laughs> all right. So uh, thank you for listening. Should I should I wrap it up? Or, or Ethan, tell, tell
1: us where you can find you on the internet. You can find me on Twitter at Black mud Puppy and on my website blackmudpuppy.com and uh yeah do that you works. have
0: venutist.com yet i do oh shit <laughs> i forgot again yeah
1: <laughs> i now own the it's a nudist n e w t i s t.com excellent yeah good and gabriel
2: and you can find me at twitter and and uh, instagram at, at Serpent illus. And on my website at gabrielugueto.com.
0: Excellent. And you can can find me at Mark Schertz, M-A-R-K-S-C-H-E-R-Z, on Twitter. You can find me at my website, markschertz.com. You can find me on Facebook and all the other things. If you Google me, you'll usually find me because I'm the only one. So... (laughs) And you can follow the podcast... Obviously, you're already listening to the podcast, but first of all, you should subscribe. Because if you don't subscribe, you don't necessarily get all of the latest episodes. And getting the episodes is kind of the whole point. So, subscribe to the episode. You can do that on basically all of the podcasting things, except currently Google Play, which I don't know how to get it to work. Um, I've tried. It should be working. I don't know if it works. Who knows? And Spotify is just not accepting us for some reason. We're not cool enough yet. So... Uh, Yeah, I'm trying to get those working, but at least for now, go to the episode. The show notes are all on squamatespod.com, where you can find I make extensive show notes with corrections and comments and lots and lots and lots and lots of literature, if you want to look up anything. We're also on Twitter at squamatespod. On Facebook, Squamates Pod. On Instagram, it's Squamates Pod. And you can write to us directly if you have questions that you want to ask or you want to tell us how badly we fucked up in a non-public <laughs> forum. You can write to us an email, squamatespod at gmail.com. And I think that's all of the things. So, yeah. as we say on the podcast, <laughs> Hakuna, Hakuna Suwamara! <laughs>